Welcome back to uh, a weirdest thing podcast. I am your host Scotty Milder, and I'm here again with Danielle Robertson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me back, Scotty. Yeah, of course. And of course, I mean, big part of the reason why I wanted to have you back was we teased some research that you did last week, but that we didn't end up actually having time to do. So I wanted to make sure I had give you time to talk about that. So awesome. Yeah, um, sounds good. Got quite yeah. the story prepared. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and just dive in. So, whenever you're okay, uh, awesome. So, if you listened the last time I was on, we talked about comedy and improv comedy and stand up comedy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was doing to prep specifically for this podcast in the nature of the podcast was figuring out how did stand up comedy start? Where did that right. happen? What are those origins? And, um, so couple of things I'd like to start with. First off, I want to give huge props and kudos to Scotty and Amelia who do this type of research on a <laughs> weekly basis. It is extremely involved and a lot of a lot goes into it that I was not aware of. You hear the podcast and you're like, cool. You know, they looked at a couple of articles, they consolidated a story, and now I get to hear that story. But now having done this, it was like <laughs> 10 different sources and then trying to figure out where all of those things right. piece together and, and puzzle up. It was quite the process. Yeah, uh, so- it does turn into like kind of a book report every couple of weeks <laughs> it really does but like this it was a lot of fun to do and especially like I hope you guys consistently find things that you're interested in talking about because you know I learned a lot in this process and now kind of feel like I have a foundation for uh, this art form that I admire and want to pursue more so cool. I appreciate that yeah so super cool Good on you, Scotty and Amelia. <laughs> Jeez Louise, it's 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 work for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um. So in that vein, I also want to provide a, a content slash trigger warning for the content that I'm about to speak on. If you are a person of color in America and issues of racism are of hot button to you, I do. I still encourage you to listen because what mm. this story ends up being is giving credit where credit is due. And I think that's extremely important to do. But yeah, the story does deal with the American South in the time of of slavery. So therefore, there's a lot of racist undertones and overtones to this story. And I just want to to say that and make that abundantly clear up top. And I will say, if you're not a person of color and right away, like some weird flags like perked up, I encourage Mm. you to, to... to hang around and listen um, because I think we shy away from these stories because they do make us uncomfortable. I will say that even in doing this research, there were some times that I was like, I don't have space for that right now. Mm, Um, But at the end of it, uh, what we have here is what I find to be a very fascinating story. It's just, if you're talking about the past of America, it is often not not the lightest of content so I just wanted to go into it saying that awesome all right right. okay so uh, buckle up buttercups we're about to get into it so uh, first and foremost I do think it is helpful to strip down what we know as stand-up comedy in its most simple terms so how I define stand-up comedy and how uh, other sources helped me define stand-up comedy in a simple way is 
a comedic performance to a live audience where a performer speaks directly to that audience as mm. themselves. Yeah, but okay. Super succinct and kind of just sums up and we'll we'll wrap that back up there at the end. Right. Uh, so this particular form of entertainment got its start in America in the 1840s from the three-act variety show format of minstrel shows, a.k.a. minstrelsy. Mm. Right. So the short definition of minstrel shows is... Performers, mainly white performers in blackface makeup, singing songs and doing skits depicting people specifically of African descent. Right. So I I would love to assume that everybody knows what blackface is and why mm. you should not do it. But hopefully this story really maps that out and makes it very uh -huh. clear as to why people get so upset when, you know, popular figures who are not of African descent choose to, to portray themselves as such. Right. Um, so blackface, again, a very simplistic definition of blackface is the act of a light skinned, typically a white person darkening their face to mimic the complexions of black people. Mm -hmm. When blackface started, white people would burn the ends of corks and use the char to darken their skin. And then later this evolved where they would use shoe polish or something similar. Right. And when they would do blackface makeup, they would specifically leave the area around their lips without any makeup on it to make the lips appear larger again in an effort to mimic the appearance of black americans right right so you know not like don't do it <laughs> just don't yeah. do it if ever yeah. you are like i really admire this this person of african descent this black person this black american figure and i want to emulate them blackface is not the way to do it no. um so just don't just don't and some modern context. So looking through, in general, blackface and like the art of minstrelsy still pops up in popular culture a little more often and a little, a little less sensitively than most people would like or desire. But one instance of blackface showing up in modern culture that I think is handled as appropriately as it can be, if we have any Mad Men fans out in the audience tonight. Oh, yeah. Yep, season three, episode three mm -hmm. of Mad Men, we see Roger Sterling, played by John Slattery, mm -hmm. in blackface while he serenades Jane, his partner. Uh, so in the episode, right. Roger even says, I did this at home for her with a little shoe polish. She thought it was a scream. Mm. And I'll provide some context as to why I think that particular portrayal of minstrelsy and, and blackface is okay. First off, the creators were very aware of blackface not being cool right but they were depicting a time where right. racism was just kind of status quo and i think it would be irresponsible to to remove that from the telling of that story and mm -hmm. like saying that these characters didn't in, in, inhabit those ideals and those feelings but there are other instances where we see blackface in modern culture namely in comedy <laughs> Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm, that's where I kind of draw the line. So <laughs> you can still see this episode of Mad Men, but the creators have added dis a disclaimer explaining why they've chosen to continue airing the episode in its entirety mm -hmm. when other shows with blackface have removed such episodes. Other shows that do this, 30 Rock, Community, Scrubs. 30 Rock did it? 30 Rock did it. Uh, they had wow. to remove four episodes. So wow. it, it wasn't just like a thing that they did and then had to remove. It was kind of a running gag on the mm. show for a little bit. Okay. And Tina Fey, of course, issued an apology. Sorry for any pain that I've caused in, in doing these things. And yeah. now I looked for those episodes and I can't find them. I mean, I remember that Scrubs and Community. I remember that. But I, yeah. 
didn't know that about 30 Rock. Yeah, same. So, you know, and I think like also Mad Men was a dramatic depiction of the time. Right. So they weren't poking fun at anybody. They weren't like punching up. If anything, they were punching down to like white. I mean, they were, and... they were, yeah, I, I remember that episode and I remember Roger, like it's that thing with Mad Men that it, that show would do a lot, which was like, look at how fucked up things were in the past. Exactly. <laughs> and it was very much about like, holy shit, like this was considered acceptable. Like it was very aware that this was like, yeah, this is not cool. Right. And hoping that it also kind of stirred that in the audience of like, I'm watching this and I right. can't believe this was a thing. I can't I mean, believe it's, it's acceptable. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I remember my reaction just like cringing through the whole thing. Yeah. And like, I think because I watched Mad Men up until around that point and it wasn't the Blackface episode that did it for me. I think it just was a thing where like you then had to pay to watch Mad Men and I just mm-hmm. wasn't invested enough in the story as a whole to, con- right. to pay to watch it. So used to be free, wasn't free. So I stopped watching it. However, there was a blackface episode and you can still watch that episode if you if you so mm. choose. Or you may remember that episode like Scotty does if you are already a fan of Mad Men. Yeah. So in order to kind of contextualize how minstrel shows led to stand-up comedy, it's important to kind of talk about the history of minstrel shows. So I'm going to get into that right okay. now. So minstrel shows are considered the first truly American form of entertainment. Every other form of entertainment that we see in America was adopted from somewhere, mm. from something, from some place, okay. from some idea. But this particular thing is the first like American-made form of entertainment, which yeah. I find fascinating. Uh, so a lot of the research that I pulled for this comes from Robert Toll, who was one of the first scholars to study minstrelsy and dissect its immediate and lasting impact on popular culture. If anybody's interested in reading it, quite a long article, but oh my gosh, it is so fascinating and heartbreaking in so many ways. And that article is from American Heritage and it's called Blackface, The Sad History of Minstrel Shows. Mm. So how minstrelsy all began in 1920, I'm sorry, in 1828, white performer Thomas Rice created the character of Jim Crow. As we all know, Jim Crow is a real human being. So Rice was in Louisville, Kentucky, and he saw a crippled black stable hand doing a dance and singing a song. Rice memorized the song, copied the dance, wrote some new verses, and he tried the routine on stage and immediately success people Mm, just they were loving it they thought it was funny they thought it was wonderful and he became a huge hit in the ohio river valley and was soon known as jumping jim crow and that was on all the posters jumping jim crow come see thomas rice is jumping jim crow and he performed to crowds of 3500 people in new york's Bowery theater so if anybody's a performer out there and you perform to a crowd of 3500 people the scope of that is insane that is a huge audience to perform to yeah especially like way back then. This is almost 200 years ago now. So this song and dance number was said to have touched a chord in the American heart, which had never been vibrated before and was credited with bringing black culture to white Americans. Mm. People were like, oh, I'm learning so much. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Right. Uh, So hopping on the coattails of Rice's success, other white performers began observing the behaviors of Black people in joyful moments, would take their songs, mimic their dances, don Blackface, and perform their intensely and dangerously skewed perception of the Black experience for crowds. Billy Willock, a Blackface performer in the 1830s, would steal, and I quote, 
would steal off to some Negro hut and hear the darkies sing and see them dance, taking a jug of whiskey to make things merrier. Mm. I would like to add that any merriment that was observed was probably due to the absence of white people. So they would literally like hang out outside, you know, where they were congregating, press their ear up against the door and just listen. And they would absorb these moments of of jubilation. And then they would explode them, make fun of them, put them on stage. And it just wasn't a good, wasn't a good look. Just was not a good look. However, this whole thing created the idea of the happy slave, the happy-go-lucky slave on the plantation who had no worries in the world. Um, And that happy and I quote, happy darky archetype would become a central figure in all minstrel shows. Mm-hmm. So E.P. Christie, another white performer and eventual leader of the Christie minstrels, was fascinated with, and I quote, queer words and simple but expressive melodies that he heard from Black dock workers in New Orleans. Mm. So in the winter of 1842-1843, four individual Black-faced performers were in New York City between engagements, so they came together and formed the Virginia Minstrels and were hugely successful. Soon, mm. there were minstrel troops everywhere. Okay. In 1844, the Ethiopian Serenaders, that was the name of their group, performed Oy. for President John Tyler at the White House. This is wow. how institutionalized this art form was. And, and early. Acceptable. Yeah, yeah, super early. And I didn't realize it was that early either. I kind of thought of minstrel shows popping up like towards the Civil War. Uh, yeah. But this, this is... I, I think I thought it was like a Reconstruction era thing, but... yeah. Yeah. yeah, so definitely happened way earlier and was way more popular than anybody could have anticipated. Right. And by 1848, blackface minstrel shows were the national art form. And by 1852, uh-huh. minstrel shows were happening all the way from New York City to the new state of California. So this wow. was a coast-to-coast thing that was happening. Okay. So much so that when Commodore Perry's fleet forced its way into Japan in 1853 and 1854, his crew chose to introduce American culture to the Japanese with a minstrel show. Ugh. Good, like, good, good just, job, guys. Yeah, good, good job, guys. Well done. So, and all of this was in an effort to entice Japan to enter diplomatic relations with us. And I just can't imagine being, you know, like they roll up on the Japanese shore and they're like, hey, do you want to enter diplomatic relations? And they're like, no, we've been isolated for centuries. We're good. And they're like, but hold up, look what we can do. And then some like guy went behind a boulder or whatever, and then came out in blackface and started dancing. And I just, yeah, just back. Yeah, anyway. well, and it's just like, how would that, how would that even translate to like a society that knows nothing about this history? Like, it's such a weird, weird. Like, I can't even wrap my head around even the racist logic of it. And then, like, yeah, like having no exposure first off to like these, you know, these white guys, and then all of a sudden seeing them do this thing that is just it's it's incomprehensible. It is crazy. Yeah. I'm just imagining crazy. a lot of like cocked head quizzical looks yes you know and then you know america wasn't great at taking no so they forced japan into diplomatic relations you know the things that americans do like all of this is just one way of saying like this is america this is american this is who we are and this is what we're about right and i also like really want to emphasize that although slavery was more heavily concentrated in the southern states blackface minstrelsy was created and popularized in the north 
and mm -hmm. white northern audiences showed up in the thousands to watch these shows. Mm -hmm. so even if you were a black person who was not enslaved by white people in the north, you were the butt of their most popular form of entertainment. Like it's like a different yeah. kind of chain, but it's still a chain. You're still held down. There's still no way for you to advance in this world at all. There's just such a myth of like, you know, the evil racist south versus the good virtuous north and it's like no 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 one looked great. Yeah, no no one was doing a good job. Like no. yes, there were there was the idea of the free black man in the north. Mm -hmm. But I'll get into that because it's even the way it relates to the Minstrel Show is just it's absolutely terrible. Speaking of which, and so one of the other central figures, so we talked about quote unquote the happy darky, and another central figure in minstrel shows was the free black man in the north that was wildly out of place in dress, mm. in manner, in mm. speech. And the whole point of this character was that this character was making wild attempts to fit in, but Ugh. would therefore sound more dim-witted and buffoonish for those efforts. So they were really just making fun of, of yeah. the free people as well. So there was just no way to win. You were either no. a slave getting made fun of or you were a free man getting made fun of. And that was the idea of what the Black experience was in America at that time. And pretty much... Right. And, like the only way that people were getting this information was through these mental shows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm learning so much. I had no idea, but they were laughing at this. Can, can I ask a question? Sure. I'm, I'm just curious, like what was going on in their head? Were they aware of how much they were making fun of black people or were they rationalizing it in some way of like, this is appreciation. Look at this this beautiful folk art form or what like I, I just I just think about the way white racists like to excuse their racism absolutely so I mean I think there was this was more or less the beginning of white people learning songs and dances of, of black people which is right. a, a tradition that that hasn't ended but it did derive from what they were seeing and then they were just exploding it to to a point that I, I have to believe that they knew that they were making fun of them and I have okay. to believe that they that they knew that they this wasn't an accurate representation right and, and that kind of feeds into like the next thing so white performers of this time white blackface performers of this time inappropriately euphemized their work by calling themselves Ethiopian delineators mm -hmm. so the whole term of like minstrel show blackface all of that stuff didn't come until you know historians came and they're like this is what this is okay. they would say I'm an Ethiopian delineator and I just want to make it abundantly clear that these people weren't like anthropologists interested in the reality of black experience and behaviors these were entertainers interested in profiting right. the stereotypes they created about Black experiences and behaviors. Right. I mean, talk about trying to polish a turd. With really, there. really, yeah. really, like really, really, really cool. And like, you know, and this is something that still happens in like the depictions of Black people in media mm -hmm. has advanced, but it there's still you can still see the cobwebs of this shit happening sure yeah and there there are people and companies and things um making the efforts to shake those cobwebs off and keep them away and there are companies that, that aren't this is still a thing that we see in popular culture so mitchell shows continued being wildly popular and went virtually unchallenged until black abolitionists began speaking up against the art form mm -hmm. frederick douglas being the main one publicly right. described blackface performers as and i quote the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens i mean 
accurate. Yeah, say it, Frederick, right? Like, not mincing words there. And also, yes, dead on. Mm -hmm. So minstrelsy lost popularity during and after the Civil War as new entertainment such as variety shows, musical comedies, and vaudeville started gaining traction in the North. Mm -hmm. Black-faced troops continued to travel and were still fairly popular in the South and Midwest. So pretty much they said, cool, you don't want us here. We'll find someplace that does want us. And, you know, as the sprawl of the level of wokeness at that time kind of made its way, mm-hmm. yeah, mental shows, people, they just weren't like hot bag as they were early on. Right. So vaudeville is going to play a big part in how stand-up comedy came to be. So a real brief history on that. Vaudeville started in France, became popular in America post-Civil War. And then America saw this variety show and thought, you know what it's missing? racism Mm -hmm. and continued infusing minstrelsy and blackface into vaudeville shows and performances right on it goes so while i mean that's i i think my association with blackface goes back to vaudeville i didn't realize there was this whole history pre-vaudeville yeah and then i guess vaudeville also focused a lot on bringing solo acts whereas minstrelsy Mm -hmm. made its bread and butter on like groups of people coming together and doing like a full performance but because it was so popular and all of these archetypes and these characters were kind of again the first american art form first american created thing yeah it continued it prevailed and (laughs) so like it it was just it was so long that it went like there were still minstrel shows happening in high schools in the 1960s that's insane insane absolutely insane i mean when you think about it not surprising actually not surprising but like disappointing disappointing. (laughs) so while minstrelsy was the invention of the white male performer there were black minstrel performers and troops dating back as early as the 1840s and 50s these troops emphasized that their ethnicity made them the only true delineators of black song and dance One advertisement described a troop as seven slaves just from Alabama who are earning their freedom by giving concerts under the guidance of their northern friends. Mm. Yeah, so minstrelsy was the only way that Black performers were able to perform prior to the Civil War, and they were forced to adopt the wildly inaccurate stereotypes created of them by the white male performers that came before. So meanwhile, and to the surprise of no one, Black minstrel performers were paid significantly less, if at all, than their white counterparts. Yeah, of course. Of course they were. Uh, Many Black minstrel troops attempted to alter the inaccuracies of the most popular characters and use the satirical nature of the show to poke fun at white society. Mm. So we talked a little last time uh, we were on the show, I was on the show, about the difference between comedy that punches up and comedy that punches down. Right. White minstrelsy punched down. Black Mm -hmm. minstrelsy attempted to punch up. Okay. So one of the things that uh, started showing up in minstrelsy was called the Jubilee, which is like a song or a spiritual common in minstrel shows. And in a Black minstrel performance, one Jubilee described heaven as a place, quote, where the white folks must let the darkies be and a place where they could not be bought and sold. So that commentary only started showing up when Black minstrel performance started taking the stage. And that was that was the best they could do. And like a counterpart to what black minstrel performers were doing when white minstrel performers were were writing the show and there was a scene in the plantation or a scene in heaven as this one kind of mirrors slaves would be reunited with their white masters in heaven and song and dance would ensue and that's how white people kind of interpreted (sighs) it's just 
gives me a headache. It gives, yeah, it, it, it gives me a lot of aches. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's just, it's so, I don't know. And it's also disappointing because people want to think that we're so far removed from this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're really, really not as much as anybody would like to be. Right. So yeah, the point of the blackface minstrel show was comedy, but the link between minstrelsy and stand-up comedy is so much more direct. So I'll, I'll get into that right now. Okay. So the typical minstrel performance followed a three-act structure. So in the first act, the troupe danced onto stage and then they would exchange wisecracks and they would sing songs. And then in the second act, they featured a variety of entertainments, including the pun-filled stump speech. Mm. Then the final act consisted of a slapstick musical plantation skit or a send-up or satire of a popular play or opera. It is from the second act, the stump speech, that we truly see the roots of what we know today as stand-up comedy. So a typical stump speech consisted of malapropisms, which is the Mm. substitution of a word for another similar-sounding word, uh, nonsense sentences, and puns delivered in a parodied version of Black vernacular English. So a lot of this, especially like as Black politicians were kind of coming up, what they would do is they would take on the persona of this Black politician and then they would give uh, like a speech and in that speech they would misuse words all of the time so in an attempt to sound smart they would end up sounding stupid mm, and that was okay. pretty much the gist of the of the stump speech so the, uh, the stump speaker wore black face and moved around the stage like a clown and topics varied from pure nonsense to parodies of politics science and social issues Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is already starting to sound a little more familiar, a little closer to what we know now as stand-up comedy. Right. But if we go back to the simplified definition of stand-up comedy stated earlier, a comedic performance to a live audience where a performer speaks directly to the audience as themselves. Mm-hmm. We're still missing a step, right? So the first time we see this exact thing is from a gentleman named Charlie Case. So little unofficial, I'm sorry, a little official documentation of Case's personal history is available. But in researching, I stumbled on an article called A History of Black Excellence, The Man Who Invented Laughter. And this is written by Michael Harriet. Oh, okay. So Charlie Case was born in 1858 and was a blackface vaudeville performer in America and gained popularity by writing and performing vaudeville parodies in the 19th century ballads style. So Case is thought to have been of mixed ancestry, and while some sources say this is merely speculation, others say that he is undeniably the product of an interracial relationship between an Irish woman and a free Black man. But what is agreed upon in all sources is that Case was of light enough complexion to pass as a white man. Mm. And so I assume that the discrepancy and consistency with his lineage is what being a known Black man would have cost him. It would have sure. cost him quite a lot. So I'm sure like they were like, hey, um, my half-Black friend. And he was like, shut your mouth. Shut mm. your mouth right now. I am a successful performer. I'm actually making money doing this. Do not cost me everything. Right. And, you know, historians have seemed to uncover the fact that, yes, he was, in fact, of mixed race. Okay. Uh, so because of his ability to pass as a white man, Case did enjoy many privileges like attending college and becoming a lawyer, but Case had a desire to travel, so he gave up his legal profession and became a traveling salesman. Mm. So <laughs> this part, it does crack me up a little bit because Case was not so good at the actual transactional part of the sales process. <laughs> like he is historically a terrible salesman, didn't land many deals 
However, people would follow him from town to town just to hear his sales pitches. And because mm. of his light skin, he was able to sit in beer halls and tell stories, which he was okay. actually quite good at. Mm. Yeah. So in the late 1880s, one of Case's show business friends fell ill and Case organized a talent show to raise some money, during which he tried out his act. People loved him. They were like, mm. this guy, there's some this guy i want to watch more of this guy mm-hmm. and as his act evolved he became a well-known neurotic who would fiddle with a string and swing his arms during his act to ease his nerves mm. so commonly throughout this man's career he is known to have nervous breakdowns to be very anxious to be mm. quote-unquote a neurotic is what they called him okay And when he first started, because group performances were so popular, it started as a trio, but soon people were like, I'm only here for this guy. So he went solo. He went on his own and he would go on stage delivering monologues by himself. I guess that monologues, right? One guy talking. Right. So most of Case's stories were about his father, and he was known for spinning a painful story into a hilarious one. Mm. He was considered the greatest master of the unexpected statement in the world. And though etymologists claim the origin of the term is unknown, vaudeville experts agree that Case was the first person to call his technique of getting a laugh the punchline. Mm. Cool. Good on you, Case. Yeah. So a historian by the name of Ramona S. Baker wrote about Case, and I quote, Case's sense of humor was sly and very natural, quick-paced, and somewhat distracted. He spoke very quickly and slipped in small things here and there in a story that one was just trying to get the whole of. And just as the audience understood the story's setup, he would throw in a small comedic thing and Mm. give almost no time for the audience to laugh. He would just keep on going with the story. It's interesting because it just makes me think of what we were talking about last week when I was talking about Richard Pryor and like you know that was kind of his whole approach so yeah it it was like they were there to share and if you laughed cool but right at the end of the day like they were just really talking about the truth of the human experience the truth of their human experience and Mm -hmm. it resonated with people and people found it hilarious but still people were super confused by this guy because it was this was super brand new and Mm -hmm. he was referred to as the funniest human being who ever broke into vaudeville ever wow okay Mm-hmm. but lest we forget the american influence of minstrelsy on vaudeville because of that case's early work was performed in blackface and costume and still had held within it the sensibilities mm. of civil war minstrelsy right. so cases of monologists more closely resembled minstrel stump speeches than today's stand-up comedy okay until the early 1930s yeah this is what you hung in there for guys Mm -hmm. at the turn of the century case began having problems coping with his nerves and the pressures of performing and one case would speak about his neuroses to his colleagues he revealed the cause was simply that he hated blackface Mm. so do i charlie so do i yeah so he could have just been like i'm not going to do this anymore But instead, he said, I'm going to keep performing, but I'm going to change what I do. So he stopped wearing costumes in blackface, stopped using props, and almost completely eliminated music from his act, Hmm. aside from the occasional parody that he'd become really famous for. Right. So he became known as the purest monologist of the vaudeville era, but like literally nobody knew how to describe his act because it was so different from anything that they had seen up to this point. So he became known as the man who talks about his father that's mm. kind of how they knew him yeah, very very literal <laughs> right yeah they're like that's that oh yeah the guy that talks about his father he's the only one that does that and now he'd yeah. be one of, of thousands right no one reviewer in 1909 wrote he stands in one place on the stage throughout his act 
Once in a while, he moves his hands, but never his feet. He meanders from story to story, each one funnier than its predecessor, and you are really wishing he would stop long enough for you to get your breath, but he just keeps right on. Hmm. Stand-up comedy, right? Yeah, there you go. Awesome. So because there really wasn't such a thing as intellectual property in the early days of live performance, it was common for material to be taken and performed as one's own. Right. So in 1910, after recovering from a nervous breakdown, Case went on tour in England where he first performed his song, There Once Was a Poor Young Man Who Left His Country Home. That's the title of the song. Really Mm. long title. And then in 1933, the film called The Fatal Glass of Beer is based on that exact song. And at the beginning of the film, white actor slash comedian W.C. Fields sings Mm. the song and he became quite popular for it. There was once a poor boy and he left his country home. And he came to the city to look for work. He promised his mama he would lead a sinless life and always shun the fatal curse of drink. So, pretty much, he just took all of this work that he had heard before. Took it at his own, put it in a movie, became super famous for it. And people don't Mm -hmm. know about Charlie Case, but there was nothing Charlie Case could do about it. And, you know, that's just kind of the way we chug along from there. What could have been and should have been a very long career in comedy for Charlie Case ended in November of 1916 when Case died. So another trigger warning, uh, suicide. And I just Mm. want to say that if if you're um, sensitive about that, I totally understand. But yes, the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the head. Okay. So a vaudevillian reported that Case shot himself and that his dying words were, pardon me. However, the police were told that a bottle of oil and a cleaning cloth were on the floor, which was supposed to be evidence that he'd accidentally killed himself while Mm. cleaning his gun. Regardless, it was generally recognized that he shot himself and being of mixed blood was the chief reason. So in announcing his death, the reviewer of the New York Evening World said, if all of the minutes of joy he gave to the public could be added up, it would cover hundreds of gladsome years. So there you have it. Charlie Case, a black man born before the Civil War, is commonly and widely recognized as the very first stand-up comedian. Wow. Yeah. And of course, I had never heard of him. Yeah. The evolution from this just disgusting caricature, I mean, I'm putting heavy air quotes art form, I guess, Mm -hmm. if you want to call it that, into this, like you said, being a monologist is like really interesting. It's just this kind of stripping away of artifice over time. Exactly. And and it took, uh, see, he passed away in 1916. So almost 100 years after minstrelsy came to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And without that, you know, some would probably want to say like it would have happened anyway like eventually one guy would have got up there and talked about his life but who knows how long that would have taken and who knows what that would have looked like and I think so many people now and me even like wanting to get into stand-up comedy I had no idea that this is where it came from Mm -hmm. like I think of stand-up comedy in like the 40s 50s and 60s 60s like the Lenny Bruce's and those are the comedians that pop into my head but without this terribly racist past there would have been no foundation for that. There would have been no getting on stage as yourself, which was the thing that we hadn't seen until Charlie Case did it. Yeah, and that's interesting. And it's interesting because I'm going to, in my story, I'm going to get into uh, Jewish humor. 
mm-hmm. it's interesting the ways in which Jewish humor kind of contrasts with that, but I'll, I'll get there in a second. I did want to ask a question. So you were talking about how you see that episode of Mad Men as sort of an appropriate, I guess, depiction of blackface. Mm-hmm. What do you think of, because I know this has been very controversial and I know that it's, it's something I am not sure what my opinion on it is. But what, like, what's your opinion of the Robert Downey Jr. performance in um, Tropic Thunder? Ooh, I I struggle with that because overall, I will say Tropic Thunder. There was like a smartness to the comedy that I wasn't overtly mm-hmm. upset at, and there was an awareness I think on the parts of the of the creators of the actor involved. Mm-hmm. I I do think that there was. <laughs> This is going to sound silly, but a certain sensitivity that was applied to that. Mm-hmm. Like they were doing it intentionally. And it was also like a character, right? I've only seen it the one time for that reason. Because I was like, yeah. you know, you can't, I can't throw this into my, you know, my weekly, my right. weekly watch. But Robert Downey Jr. is a character, like he plays, right? He's an actor in the movie. And then that actor gets a job as a black right. person in I a mean- film. So it's like I a degree s- of separation from Robert Downey Jr. doing it because he's playing exactly. a character that does it. Well, and, and when you get to the whole question of punching up versus punching down, and it, I've only seen Tropic Thunder the one time as well. So I, I could be wrong about my memory, but my memory of it is the target of the joke is not Black people. It's the uh, method actor, the like, you know, the the actor who transforms himself to win an Oscar kind of is the Daniel Day Lewis's and things like that. So it's it's like taking that absurdity to its most kind of offensive conclusion, which is a white actor playing a black man. Right. And that's the source of the joke, and, not and making fun of the black man himself. You know? Exactly. And I think because they did that degree of separation there where we right. see the actor doing that, the actor that Robert Downey Jr. plays, I, I, I mean, there's, how do you do it? Do you just never do it? And that's kind of mm-hmm. where I stand. Like, I just, I just don't, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to do it, there has to be, again, some level of, I've researched this. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know I know the joke that I'm trying to make. And I know who is at the butt end of this joke. Right. And it is not, again, Black people. It is, yeah, this idiot actor who thinks he can get away with it. And people right. fawn over him for and, it. And his, like, sort of, he's so privileged in his idiot actorness that he doesn't even realize what he's doing. Like, exactly. So... Yeah, that like that's the defense I guess I've always heard of it and I and I guess I agree with that but I will say when I watched the movie even knowing that that was like the source of the joke I had a hard time finding it very funny. Same. And it was it like some about it was like cutting a little too close to the bone. Yeah. And because at the end of the day Robert Downey Jr. put on blackface and mimicked Mm -hmm. a black man like that's yeah that's the work he did. Exactly. Um, so it, yeah, I understand why that one, like I've, I've heard arguments on both sides of that for <laughs> that performance. And I, I kind of understand both sides of it. You know? Yeah. And I do too. I, I would prefer for it not to exist. That's, yeah. kind of, that's kind of a thing. And if you are going to do it, it has to be in reference to the, the time period in which you're providing commentary mm-hmm. on. And that's why I do think Mad Men, I don't want to say gets away with it, but Mad Men knew what they were doing. And there's they knew a, what it meant in the context of the historical time they were talking about. There's a point to it. They're making a commentary about the society of these white, privileged, 
admin, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it, and it's meant to be shocking because if my memory is like, it kind of just happens, like it's not even really yeah. set up. So you're kind of reeling from like, wait, what am I looking at? And then, yeah, I think yeah. like Don Draper walks into this club party or something and the performance is already happening. So like right. you can, and then there's Roger Sterling in blackface serenading his girl and I saw it after the disclaimer had been added. So, and the disclaimer was shocking to me because I was mm. not already. And I was reading the disclaimer and it flat out was like, in this episode of Mad Men, there's a depiction of blackface. And I was like, mm. are you joking? Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let's, let's see like, what this how, is about. How, yeah. how on earth are they going to be able to, to do this? And then, yeah. And then we also, they did a great job because Don Draper, who is not by any means a good man but comparably speaking for the time he's not mm. the worst one there right and he gets visibly uncomfortable and asks mm. to leave mm. so we do get to see like from the outside that it wasn't like everybody wasn't just loving this thing yeah they were just eating it up which uh, i i think would make sense for that time period because we're talking like the late 50s early 60s i don't remember I exactly said, where I think that season was 1963 okay so this is a time period where maybe people are starting to wake up a little bit. Yeah. And like you said, we haven't fully woken up even today, but like maybe people were starting to look at stuff like that and be like, you know, that's actually not something we should do. Yes. Oh, in- very interesting. Yeah. I knew, I, I, I suspected when you told me what you're, you were getting into the racist history of stand-up comedy, I suspected it was going to be about blackface and minstrel shows. Cause, yeah. but I really had no idea that it went back as far as it did. Yeah. 1828. Wow. I mean, that's like within a generation of the founding of the country. So you're mm-hmm. right. It really is like the first fully American thing, which is just like, not, it's not great. Yeah. Not something to brag about. Yeah. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Thank you, children. Thank you, darling. I know you children all relaxed back there, sitting back there, looking at Bob. You think you're going to hear some jokes, don't you? Well, Mom don't know none. Mom don't know no jokes, but I can tell you some facts. Don't believe in them fairy tales in the first place. So don't look for none. Cause that Mother Hubbard going to the cupboard after dog bones and things like that, that never happened. Mother Hubbard had her gin in the cupboard and one of them squares. You know how your friends can come in, them chiselers and drink you up? So she used to tell them she's going to the cupboard to get a dog a bone. <laughs> she's going to get her a nip. Mother Hubbard was plenty hip, and you believe that. Another thing, wait a minute, honey, you'll have to... Laugh a little louder. Mom can't hear you up there. That's it. Thank you very much. See, I can't hear. A lot of people ask me, how do you become a comedian? Well, it's simple, folks. You get a lot of jokes together. You tell them to your friends. You keep the good ones. Now, before you know it, you are a riot. Everybody wants you in the home for parties, weddings, everything. You get free meals. Everybody makes a fuss over you. Now, if somebody tells you you ought to go on the stage like an idiot, you believe this. Now, to go on the stage, you must learn how to speak clearly. You go to diction school. They fill your mouth with marbles, and you are supposed to talk clearly right through the marbles. Now, every day you lose a marble. When you've lost all your marbles. All right, well, I think my story is a little bit lighter, Um, but I'm going to talk about another sort of, I guess, what would you say, ethnic root of a form of comedy. Okay. So we're going to talk about, well, here, I'm going to start actually, rather than start with a cold open, I'm going to start with a joke. Okay. 
Um, <laughs> so man is hit by a car while crossing a street in Beverly Hills. A woman rushes up to him and she puts like her coat under his head and she's cradling him. She's like, are you okay? Are you comfortable? And the man looks up at her and he says, eh, I make a decent living. Um, <laughs> so that joke <laughs> is uh, commonly attributed to Milton Berle, but it is considered the quintessential Borscht Belt joke. So this, uh, so my story this week, we're going to talk about the Borscht Belt and the roots and its roots, I guess, in both Jewish culture and Jewish humor. Just a quick uh, note on my sources here. Got Wikipedia, an article from uh, a PhD, and I forgot to write down what he's a PhD in, but his name is Hersey H. Friedman. It's Talmudic Humor and the Establishment of Legal Principles, Strange Questions, Impossible Scenarios, and Legalistic Brain Teasers. Uh, he, That's uh, the, the title of the article. Yeah, oh, it's it's kind of like, a, I think it, I think it was like a academic journal. Oh, okay. It was, I don't know, it was in web archives. So. Gotcha. Um, but uh, this Hershey H. Freeman, he worked at uh, Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. I've also got an article, History of Borscht Belt Hotels and Bungalow Colonies in the Catskills. That's from the Hudson Valley Magazine. Got Remembering the Borscht Belt from AISH.com. Did you hear the one about the Borscht Belt, which was a episode of CBS Sunday Morning that I found on YouTube. Um, the Catskills are back again and again from the New York Times. That's from 2019. An article from Commentary Magazine called Why Jews Laugh at Themselves. And then Comedy in the Catskills, Remembering the Borscht Belt. That's from New York Makers. Okay, so like I said, that that joke that I attributed to Milton Berle, that's, that's kind of considered like the quintessential, quote, Borscht Belt joke. Okay. But to really talk about like the Borscht Belt, we got to go back and talk sort of about Jewish humor as like a concept because Jewish humor is very particular. And I read some stuff that goes like real deep into like anthropological Talmudic studies. And, and like, we're not just going to like glance over the top of it. Cause a lot of it was even my head was kind of spinning from it. Um, but Jewish humor goes back essentially to the Talmud, which if, if and for people who don't know the Talmud, it's not the same as the Torah. The Torah is like the Hebrew Bible. It's the original Old Testament. The Talmud is like a compilation of like ancient Jewish oral law and tradition. And it's kind of considered the central text of rabbinic Judaism and has also been historically been treated as like a guide to daily life. So this is where you get a lot of like the kosher rules and you know things like that well one way that the talmud sort of explains its principles you know legal or tradition principles is through what's called quote talmudic logic which is presenting like elaborate legal arguments and situations often presented in a way that is so absurd as to become humorous and the idea is to use this absurdity to explore like deeper meanings of religious law in one famous one, there's an argument about basically how to slaughter an animal in a kosher way. Okay. And the Talmud presents this, well, what if someone takes a knife and throws it into a wall and on its way into the wall, it accidentally manages to slaughter an animal <laughs> in, in a, a kosher appropriate way? Would this be considered kosher? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's obviously like absurd right, right. <laughs> like wouldn't happen but it's basically using this kind of well what if sort of thing to explore the meaning of intent when you're talking about the idea of keeping kosher because it's not you know keeping kosher it's not just like the food you eat it's how the food is prepared so 
I think also like using the humor to challenge these ideas. Mm-hmm. Like if you're saying this is not okay, what if? Like when is it? When is right. it really not okay, or when is it actually okay? Right, exactly. And so, like, you know, the Talmud, it'll use these, like, brain teasers and, you know, crazy scenarios. And it's sort of, like, to keep your argument sharp. And, like, kind of like you're saying, like, well, what if this? Well, what if that? And you just kind of take it to its furthest extreme. So there's a joke that I had never heard before. And this is from that commentary magazine. But it's kind of, like, it's an example of Talmudic logic presented in a comedic way. So this is from that article in Commentary Magazine. He says, a year or two ago, I was told a joke by a friend who had heard it from a friend of his, an Orthodox Jew, who in turn had heard it from an ultra-Orthodox Jew. It had to do with the biblical injunction, thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk, which is like you can't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Oh, not not like a child. And I was like, yeah, or in anything? I don't know. Yeah. And this gets to the whole kosher prohibition of mixing meat and dairy. So as the joke goes, Moses, while copying down these words from God's mouth on Mount Sinai, looks up and says, Lord, you obviously wouldn't be bothering us with a law that's just about baby goats. You must mean that we shouldn't eat any kosher animal at all that's boiled in its mother's milk. Well, God says, all I told you was thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. But how often do we eat animals boiled in their mother's milk? Moses continues to muse aloud. There must be more to it than that. I've got it. We're not supposed to eat meat with milk in general. Moses, God says, just write down what I said. Thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. But what's the difference between milk and milk products like butter or cheese, Moses goes on. And if we're not supposed to eat meat with butter, surely we shouldn't be cutting it with a knife that's been used for butter either. Look, Moses, God says, we have only 40 days on this mountain. Do whatever the fuck you want. Let's move on to the next law. (laughs) (laughs) Which to me is just, that is like quintessential Jewish humor. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that this- gets frustrated with Moses. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that this joke comes from an ultra-Orthodox Jew. And that's a thing, like, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been to like a Jewish religious ceremony or wedding ceremony, the rabbis are stand-up comics. Like they're up there, they're cracking jokes, they're telling stories like this. It's often like these long extended parables. And it's always got this kind of punchline at the end, but it's meant to kind of make you think about something. It's also meant to, like one thing that is very common with Jewish humor and I would say even intrinsic to Jewish humor is self-deprecation. So like even this joke about like in the end of the day, it's like making fun of Moses and kind of making fun of the whole idea of like Talmudic logic, right? So this is from that uh, Friedman article, the PhD guy. He says, if classic Jewish jokes share anything with the Talmud, it is in their process rather than their content. Improbable logic, slightly convoluted arguments, skepticism, and a remarkable desire to equate intelligence with common sense. These are some of the characteristics of the rabbinic mind as well as of Jewish humor. But like I said, also Jewish humor is very much about self-deprecation. So here's a quote from Freud where he says, they, Jewish jokes, are stories invented by Jews and aimed at Jewish characteristics. The jokes made about Jews by outsiders are mostly brutal comic anecdotes in which the Jew counts as a comical figure. The Jewish jokes originating with Jews admit this too, but although they show an awareness of Jews' real faults, they also know how these are related to their good points. And they share the raconteur's own person has... Sorry, this is, there's all these typos in here. And the share, the raconteur's own person has in what is being criticized creates the subjective conditions for the joke work that are otherwise difficult to set up. 
By the way, I do not know whether it often happens in other instances that a people should make fun of its own nature to such an extent. And then he continues, as the primary thrust of the humor is directed not, as in most jokes, aggressively or mockingly against the other, but rather against one's own group. That is, against the Jews themselves. Moreover, such a joke is truly Jewish only when its Jewish teller identifies with this group. If mechanically repeated by a Gentile or an assimilated Jew, it would no longer be the same joke. So back to the commentary magazine, he says, take the legendary Jack Benny skit in which Benny is accosted by an armed mugger who threatens your money or your life. The comedian takes his time answering and when prodded with a gun protests, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. So while he's not openly identified as a Jew, the two characteristics that he is being mocked for, love of money and over-intellectuality are widely associated with Jews. So is the ambivalence of the humor. It is laughable, after all, to be so attached to the contents of one's wallet that one would be prepared to die for them, just as it is laughable to want to cogitate on the matter at gunpoint. Still, are we not also forced to admire the person who refuses to be rushed, even by a threat to his life, and insists on his right to rational reflection? A stereotypical goy acts blindly. A stereotypical Jew thinks before acting. I, this was really fascinating to me because I've always thought of Jewish humor going back into my own family very much as rooted in self-deprecation. So like we've talked about punching up and punching down, right? right. Jewish humor is kind of like about punching yourself. Yeah, punching inward. <laughs> punching yeah. inward. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting is this idea that like, but at the same time, it's while we're sort of making fun of ourselves, we're also kind of gently pointing out things that we find admirable about ourselves and why this doesn't translate to a non-Jew telling the same joke because then it becomes punching down. Yes. At that point, you know, something gets lost in translation. I've well, often- anymore. Like there's nothing, because you're not learning anything about the person that's telling the joke except for that they're an asshole right exactly there's something one like wonderfully delightful about somebody of a jewish person talking about their real experiences and how funny they can be and the truth in that Mm -hmm. and then somebody who's detached from that experience them talking about it tells you a lot about them but nothing real good so right well and in a way it's sort of like back to your story we don't have any record of these performances that these white performers were watching Like we don't have videotape or whatever of actual like black dock workers in New Orleans or whatever. All we got was the white people, like going through the white person filter and then you get this caricature on the other. Exactly. With Jewish humor, particularly with Borscht Belt humor, there's a record of the original source kind of delivering and you can tell the difference. But I've always, and I've talked about this on the show, like I've always thought that this is a real double-edged sword for Jews because I think and this is not original to me, but like this tendency towards self-deprecation and also very dark humor, Jewish humor can often be very dark. It's all rooted in pain and it's all rooted in persecution. And it's really where I think the self-deprecation comes from is like, we know our otherness to the goy, right? To the Gentiles. We know that we will always be the other to them. Even if they're smiling and laughing along with us, we are the other. So we're going to beat them to the joke because we know you're thinking the joke. We're going to beat you to it. That's a way of like putting up some armor. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think the double-edged sword is by doing this, we've created a permission structure for people to think it's okay to make fun of Jews. Yeah. And Um, like, and beating to the joke. Do you think that there's also like an aspect of beating people the joke? mm -hmm. We're going to tell you how to make fun of us and then give you permission to do so. 
Exactly. I think the probably the worst thing that happened to Jews and pop culture, and I've made this point on here too before, is Woody Allen. Because yeah. Woody Allen created, and it wasn't uh, something that didn't exist before, but he popularized the trope of the me, 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 and Nebishi Jew. Okay. And I can't tell you how many times people have made these kind of jokes. Non-Jews have made those kind of jokes to me. People think it's okay yeah, to make good for a lot of anything so. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah like, yeah that's that yeah. is not the benchmark that you want for any no buddy's larger lived experience for sure it, exactly so i think while i appreciate this aspect of jewish humor the self-deprecation you know i remember this jack Benny joke that i'm thinking i'm thinking like that makes me laugh and that makes me that makes me think of my family. That's the type of jokes that you hear in my family. I also like, I look at it now with the benefit of hindsight and go like, I'm not sure that that served us that well. And um, yeah, and like the way that also contrasts with, with my story, because like Jewish humor kind of came from Jewish people. Black humor came from white people and then black mm-hmm. people did everything they could to like gain some control of it. Right, like, exactly. Let let's at least put it in a black body so you can see a black body doing the dances. So you can at mm. least see a black body singing the songs, you know? Yeah, that, very that's true. So interesting. That's so interesting. Yeah. And and Jewish humor is still very much rooted in this. And I think like I think there is, I would hope, in a modern day understanding with most people who aren't stupid, mm-hmm. that like you look at a minstrel performance, you look at blackface and you're like, this is not okay. This is making fun of another group of people. People don't make that connection with Jewish humor and, and, and depictions of Jews. Like people still think it's okay to present Jews in a particular way, usually nerdy, nebbishy, non-sexual, weak, you know, all of these yeah, things. And Jews, we are complicit in this because of the structure of our humor in a way that I don't think you could ever say the Black people were complicit. And even the Black performers that were doing it themselves, they were forced into that. Right. It's not the same type of complicitness that I think you can find in in Jewish humor. So I have a real, I have some real mixed feelings about about this history. That's fascinating. You could do a whole dissertation on that. That's a lot to unpack, you know? Yeah, it is. And that's why I said, like, I could go, I could just go on and on and on about that, but let's move into the Borscht Belt. Okay. And this is a term that I think people know. I think a lot of people don't really know what the Borscht Belt is. So the Borscht Belt, it existed in the Catskills Mountains of New York. It, it stretched over several counties, including Sullivan, Ulster, and Orange counties. And basically the history of this goes back to the 1800s when the Catskills became kind of known as a resort area, primarily for Gentiles, for non-Jews. People who lived in New York looking to get out of the city for a few days, they'd go up to the Catskills. So there are all these resorts that were popping up in the Catskills. Well, in the early 20th century, a lot of Jews uh, started immigrating to the U.S. from Eastern Europe. So we're talking primarily Ashkenazi Jews. And when we're talking immigrated to the U.S., we're not talking like, it's not as simple as like, we're going to the U.S. for a better life. It's more like we're getting burned out of our homes in Russia. So maybe we won't get burned out of our homes in the U.S. (laughs) Let's try it there. Let's try it there. So it was fleeing pogroms and fleeing persecution in Russia in particular was pretty awful with its treatment of Jews. We had this wave of immigration and a lot of Jews started moving into the Catskill mountain area and became farmers. 
while other Jews moved into New York and New Jersey and like the urban centers in the area. Well, as these urban Jews became more and more prosperous over time, they found that they had leisure time in a way that they never did in the quote old world. You know, mm -hmm. they were like, oh, we'd like to go take a vacation, get out of the city for a few days, like all our Gentile friends. Mm -hmm. But when they started looking into it, they realized there was nowhere for them to go because most vacation destinations in the country were barred to Jews. So like in the 1920s and 30s, most hotels refused to accept Jews as guests. They had signs saying things like no Hebrews or consumptives. Oh which my is like, gosh. yeah. <laughs> so, like, equating Jews to people with tuberculosis. Yeah. So, as a result, these Jewish farmers in the Catskills started being like, well, come, come hang out with us. So, they started renting out rooms in their houses and in their farms. And then these rooms started turning into small boarding houses and then small hotels. And then over time, these turned into the giant resorts that you associate with the Catskills. Mm -hmm. of this time period. So the Borscht Belt really existed from the 30s to about the early 1970s. Okay. There were dozens and dozens of these big, massive resorts. Probably the first one was called Grossinger's. It was in Ferndale, New York. It started as a single family home in 1919. Over time, it became a boarding house. And then once I think the owner passed away, his daughter, Jenny Grossinger, she grew it into a massive 35 building resort on 1200 acres of land. It had its own airstrip and post office. I mean, it was also the first resort in the world that actually used artificial snow for skiing. Oh, wow. Um, so here's a quote, and I forgot to write down who said this, but it was the model for hospitality. You didn't need to leave the front gate. She created a kingdom. If you needed gas for your car, you got it there. If you needed a ball gown, you could find one. The thing that happened with these Catskill Jewish, largely Jewish resorts was because Jews weren't barred from businesses in a lot of places, they became these like self-contained, like we provide everything. Yeah. And one of the things, of course, that they provided was entertainment, which I'll get to in a second. One thing that was very common in these resorts is that you would hear Yiddish spoken. Now, I think another aspect of Jewish humor is wordplay. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of this really goes back to Yiddish. Yiddish has some of the best insults that okay. you're ever gonna <laughs> you're ever gonna hear. Now and I'm gonna give you a few of them. These and I'm and unfortunately I'm only gonna give you the English translation because if I tried to do the Yiddish pronunciation myself, I'd like have to turn in my Jew card because I oh okay. Yeah no yeah. hold tight on <laughs> we'll, we'll no, keep like, that close to the I have a similar card <laughs> I'm just clutching <laughs> my chest on a thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so here's just a few of my favorite and these are and some of these are things I've heard in my own family. So one is uh stay healthy because you can kill yourself later. Um another is wow. <laughs> <lot. laughs> yeah, takes a second oh, right? <laughs> okay yeah I'm ready for the next one go on another one is this is just so like this is so Jewish and like I don't think what necessarily translates outside of it but it's uh may you lie on the ground and bake bagels like I even I don't even quite know what that means <laughs> here's one of my favorites because this one you really like only Jews will get uh, specifically Ashkenazi Jews will get is may a child be named after you soon what this means is in Ashkenazi Jewish tradition, you're not allowed to name a child after a living person. So to say, may uh, a child be named after you soon means I hope die. you die. Go die. <laughs> go die. That's yeah, a okay. that's a good one. <laughs> Another one I like is may you be so rich your widow's husband has to never work a day. 
which basically go die and then give all your money to your widow's husband <laughs> um yeah so there you go <laughs> yeah man I'd, I'd love to see like a roast battle with, with that level of yeah and it really and i i will i do have to say it does sound better in yiddish because it's that like oh you yeah know, you just throw those those hard syllables at people you know yeah <laughs> loses a little something i think in english but yeah so i said grossinger's was like kind of the first big one other large resorts that popped up were kuchers uh the concord the novelle so like i said these were all inclusive vacations full meals child care sports facilities entertainment you know everything in one place kutcher's was the longest running resort it actually ran into 2013 oh wow it was kind of the last of the borscht belt resorts uh the concord was the largest it had more than 1500 guest rooms and a dining room that sat 3,000 people and so this whole area it, because of this influx of jewish vacationers it became known as of course the borscht belt borscht being a ukrainian beet soup that is very popular with Ashkenazi Jewish families. And I always wonder, like, the name of that, was that an insularly named? I okay, so think so. It wasn't I like, was trying to find that out. There, that's called this, you know? I, I, and, and it sure seems like when you read interviews with people who are in the time period, Jews at the time are also referring to it as the Borscht Belt. So, okay. but I do, th- it, but again, it goes back to like that little bit of self-deprecation. Yeah. That area was also known as the Jewish Alps. Now, aside from being like, like it was a family vacation spot, but it was also like very important for like the New York Jewish dating scene with like young people. And so that's where a lot of the entertainment uh, came from. It was meant to like bring in young people, singles for like mixers. And so people could meet and fall in love. And so the the entire Catskills area was called, quote, one great marriage broker. Uh, This is all about like, that's where you go to meet your wife or your husband. You know, so among the entertainment at the Catskills resorts, you had like jazz greats like Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong would play there. You had a lot of apparently boxing matches were very popular. So a lot of boxers like Muhammad Ali, Floyd Patterson, they would actually train up there and then would stage like exhibition bouts in the community. The The whole history of Jews and boxing is its own thing that I, I should do on here. Like, yeah. There's, there's a whole relationship between Jews and Jewish boxers, and it's, it's a whole thing. Okay. Um, don't have time for it today. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, it became known, and it's probably what it's most associated with, is this, like, proving ground for up-and-coming Jewish comedians. Okay. So some of the comedians that were known to perform in the Borscht Belt, you had Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, Henny Youngman, Martin and Lewis, Eddie Cantor, George Burns, Eddie Fisher, Jack Benny. Woody Allen, Danny Kaye, Robert Klein, Alan Klein, or Alan King, Jerry Seinfeld, just on and on and on. I think Lenny Bruce performed in the Borscht Belt. Have you watched Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? I have. And a lot of what you're talking, like, especially the Catskills, because there's that whole episode in the matchmaking that is mm-hmm. to happen there. Like, all of that stuff feels like what you're talking about. But, of course, yeah. I don't ever want to be like, my experience with the Jewish culture is one show, and obviously <laughs> they nailed it, you know? So Yeah. <laughs> I've only, I've only watched a little bit of that show, but, and obviously like, you know, I'm Jewish, but this is, this whole culture is pretty far removed from me. I grew up in New Mexico. I'm actually, I'm actually half Jewish. So that's like one half of my family. Um, So I, yeah, I've never been to the Catskills. I don't really know. So a lot of this was news to me uh, doing the research for this, but one thing that did definitely 
hit home for me was the specific structure of like Borscht Belt humor, the comedy that kind of grew out of the Borscht Belt. So like you were saying about like intellectual property, one thing that was very common in these Borscht Belt resorts is that the comics were often like telling the same jokes they're sharing jokes. And a lot of these jokes were variations of jokes that were like already popular with Jewish audiences and um, like, you know, jokes that were told in families. So like, here's some quintessential, I already told the one Milton Berle joke. Here's a few other quintessential Borscht jokes. So I just got back from a pleasure trip. I took my mother-in-law to the airport. Um, <laughs> yep. I've been in, here, here's, uh, here's one of my favorites. I've been in love with the same woman for 49 years. If my wife ever finds out, she'll kill me. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is one that I've heard told in my family before. The doctor gave a man six months to live. The man couldn't pay his bills, so the doctor gave him another six months. <laughs> another one I think I've heard told in my family is an old man is driving down the Long Island Expressway. A cop pulls him over and says, sir, don't you realize your wife fell out of the car half a mile back? The old man says, thank God, I thought I was going deaf. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, why do Jewish divorces cost so much? Because they're worth it. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> so, one th- <laughs> so one thing I think is really interesting about this Borscht Belt humor is like you were talking about, and I'm, for, I'm was it Charlie Case? Charlie? Charlie Case, yeah. Charlie Case. How he grew into like being a monologist telling stories about himself, revealing the truth of himself. That's not what was really happening with these Jewish comedians popular in the Borscht Belt. Like I said, these were already commonly told jokes. Mm-hmm. It was very set up punchline, one-liner type humor. And it's very much like was meant to, it was not like, here's something from my Milton Burl's life that I'm going to tell you. Right. It's here's, here's our communal experience. We all know these jokes. We all share this vernacular. We all know what we're making fun of, the way we're making fun yeah. of ourselves, the stereotypes that we're playing with. You know, like this joke about the wife falling out of the car and the old man, I thought I was going deaf. This is the stereotype of the loud Jewish wife or loud Jewish mother, right? right? And Jews... And also like the depiction of like an unhappy union, right? There's right, not a right. lot of like love in these jokes. Yeah, I mean, the whole like, take my wife, please. And he, yes. yeah, this is very, that's very okay. borstal, you know? Okay. So these were like, this was a shared experience. And so there was a remove from like, there wasn't that kind of personal connection to comedy. Like you're not going there watching Milton Berle thinking he's telling you anything true about himself. He's right. It, it's about the shared, like we know who we are kind of. Experience. Yeah. And they're like short and punchy, right? There's not a whole right. lot of long exposition to get to the punchline. Yeah. It's like set up maybe some middle and then boom. That's the end right. of the joke when you move on. And it is, and it is, like I said, it goes back to like Yiddish wordplay and you know, all of that. So this is why like Borscht Belt humor is kind of considered corny today. It kind of fell out of fashion because I think as you had the rise of people like Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, you know, Lenny Bruce was a Jewish comedian, but he started like really oh, messing he with the very form. Much like any constraints that were put on mm-hmm. Lenny Bruce, he immediately broke them. And right. Yeah reading about him was fascinating because yeah. yeah he's depicted on marvelous mrs measle and i and you know in reading about i think they do a good job mm-hmm. uh, but yeah he was very much like whatever rule you try to put on what i can say on stage mm-hmm. i will do everything to step beyond yes. and out he of had that. some sharp elbows and he, like yeah. lenny bruce is so interesting to me because another thing i talked about i think when uh we were talking about um dutch schultz uh on this 
podcast, I was talking about the idea of the tough Jew. Mm-hmm. And like Lenny Bruce is kind of interesting because he's a Jewish comedian, but he kind of had that tough Jew attitude, like yeah. a lot of sharp elbows and, you know, and like my understanding is like Lenny Bruce was not necessarily that popular in the Borscht Belt. And I think it's because he was pushing against the constraints of the form. Yeah, he was talking about sex and he was using words mm-hmm. in a lot of yeah. them, you know. Yeah, because yeah. like one thing, one thing you notice about a lot of these jokes is they're pretty clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have an edge to them, but it's like, but again, it's like this communal experience. But when you start doing what Lenny Bruce was doing, it was kind of turning it around on the audience in an aggressive way. Yes, that I think a lot of these people going to the resorts in the Catskills weren't they, they weren't prepared for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. was it wasn't their wasn't their uh, uh, wasn't their safe space? I guess. Right. So when uh, it's like being like, make fun of me in a way that I know. (laughs) Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. (laughs) Not comfortable with this way you're making fun of me. Make fun of me in the comfortable way. You know, exactly. Remember. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was sort of like violating the contract and like interest. I would say interesting ways. So there's a a guy uh, named Stewie Stone. He was in that CBS This Morning video that I watched. And he he says, you know, the cats, because of all the shared jokes and this like setup punchline, one-liner type humor, he was like, the Catskills was a rhythm. These, these jokes, it was, it was more about the rhythm and the delivery than the, than the content. Because everyone knew the content. Everyone heard the jokes a million times before. Also like audiences in the Catskills were known to be very fickle and very demanding. And were like, if they didn't like it, they just get up and leave. Stewie Stone was talking about how, I think he said at the Concord famously had these big doors at like the back of the performance hall. And mm-hmm. whenever you, he was like, you knew you were bombing when the doors would start opening and this like light of God from outside would start coming in. And he was like, sometimes you'd have a one door night where only one door would open. But if you really bombed, it might be a three door night. Yeah, it's yeah. like you're in a spotlight the entire time. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's not going so well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the Borscht Belt kind of declined over time. Like I said, it really, the heyday was the 30s through like the probably the mid 60s. Mm-hmm. Once you start getting into the mid 60s, it started to go downhill. A big reason why is because anti Semitism stopped being such a barrier for vacationers. You know, as. <laughs> yeah well you know it's interesting i mean obviously we're very aware of the 60s as the time period where like jim crow started to at least in official terms started to collapse right official segregation was going by the wayside well this was also true with jews you stopped seeing the signs you know no hebrews and consumptives you couldn't get away with that anymore uh also different vacation spots started becoming more popular las vegas became a huge vacation destination florida obviously there's the stereotype of the jews in florida well it's because Mm -hmm. jews kind of started stopped going to the catskills and started going down to like miami beach for vacations so these resorts started to just kind of dwindle and collapse over time at the same time a lot of people non-jews started discovering this area so you started getting more of a mix by 1965 a third of grossinger's visitors were not jewish which you know 10 years earlier would have been like 2% or something. Right. Also, like I said, the social upheaval of that time period saw like the changing of comic mores. So, mm-hmm. you know, as we were talking about with like Lenny Bruce, but also like, you know, the anti-Vietnam protests, you know, the civil rights struggle, this kind of like set up punchline kind of humor, you know, take my wife, please thing started really being seen as corny okay. and like passe. So by the 1970s, the Borscht Belt was pretty much done, 
like I said, Coochers was the last of the major Borscht Belt resorts. In that CBS This Morning video, they showed like, like I think it was from like 2012 and Coochers closed in 2013. So they're actually showing Coochers oh, wow. and, and they're interviewing uh, like the guy who is, you know, the owner who's like the grandson of the founder or whatever. And they were like, literally like to stay afloat, they were like having like festivals for like pro pot advocates. So you see like all these like stoners out in front of the resort, like smoking their bongs and listening to like hippie music and stuff, you know? So it was just very much on its way out. And then, like I said, Kutcher's finally closed in 2013. A lot of these resorts have been totally torn down. So they're not, the buildings aren't even there anymore. So it really was this like specific time period. Um, but Borscht Belt humor does survive today. Obviously, Jews are still telling these jokes to each other. There was a web series called Old Jews Telling Jokes. Uh, came out in like 2009, 2010. Got turned into a book and then got turned into an off-Broadway play. So you can actually go to YouTube. And, and I watched some of it. They're pretty funny. I mean, it is. It's very Borscht Belt humor. It's very, it's, it's very much this like one-liner kind of humor. But mm-hmm. So that is the history of the Borscht Belt. Cool. All in all, this episode was not a huge advertisement for America being a warm and welcoming place. No, not not so much. No. Stand up, like, and we're talking about comedy, which is just an interesting yeah. juxtaposition of, of ideas. Um, because mm-hmm. it's so interesting that you talk about the Borscht Belt as like this, I don't know, like this canal that people of a certain thing were able to be safe and navigate it. Mm-hmm. And similarly, whereas my story ended with Charlie Case, because, you know, give that man the credit for starting something that we still love and enjoy. Mm-hmm. But the Black comedians that came up after him also went through what they called the Chitlin circuit. Mm. These were the clubs, the very few clubs, yeah. I think in the Northeastern states that would allow Black performers. And they called you could like go on tour because they were close and connected and yeah they called it the chitlin circuit and again i'm not sure if that was an insularly named thing they do refer to it as that but i don't know if it was like hey if you're going to perform you're going to perform on the chitlin circuit it's like hey i'm performing on the i don't know i don't know right yeah yeah but but that's interesting because that really is it's like these two things you know the borscht belt and the chitlin circuit were running and i have heard of that before they're running in parallel to each other. And what's interesting is the way these comedians started to kind of overlap and mix and started to influence each other over time. And, uh, you know, I'm in a way I read about the Borscht Belt and I'm like, oh, it's kind of a shame that this era is over. And then I think about, no, it's not actually because the era came from something pretty shitty, you know? And I'd, I'd rather be able to go to Netflix and watch comedians of all sorts of cultural backgrounds nationalities ethnicities gender expressions you know i i, I like that we yeah. all have access to it today absolutely, you know? absolutely. So obviously not that racism and anti-semitism and stuff is like over it's not done right but it's but you're like not allowed to publicly be that like you can't like mm-hmm. you can't come in here because you are black or a jew that is that is worse i think right that is worse than being black and and jewish maybe it's because like you're jewish and i'm black that i'm I'm hoping that that's the case right Mm -hmm. it's gotta be yeah i i would i would say it's it's better (laughs) yeah okay it's maybe maybe not good enough yet but it's better yeah yeah Yeah. well awesome well that uh that was super interesting yeah likewise and i hope everybody out there uh 
just you know next time you turn on a, a stand-up comedy thing for your own pleasure go see it live mm-hmm. if that's if that's your bag but yeah you just have a little more context for where it came from yeah and how it happened you know yeah and as always of course stay weird stay curious and I will see you next time. Hopefully we'll be able to have time to have you on again. We should have you on since we're all friends. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there right now. Let's have you on with Amelia at some point. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's the dream. One step closer. Thank you, Scotty. Yeah, of course. All right. Well, uh, I will talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.